week, we began a series on uh, what theologians call eschatology, or the doctrine of last things. And I suggested that the present understanding of Christianity is probably significantly incomplete because the subject usually fails to give an understanding of the significance of Israel, the covenants of God and the kingdom of God, as focused on this creation. There is a tendency uh, in Christian theology to reject Israel or to compartmentalize Israel, the land and the people. And there is a dichotomy that is developed uh, where heaven is heaven and the earth is earth and heaven is good and the earth is bad and hopefully we'll get out of earth and go to heaven. Um, That is a child's uh, explanation and while not completely wrong, uh, is significantly off the mark. Uh, So as uh, I have been given a lot of questions in the last year about uh, the current state of those who have passed on, uh, heaven and hell, uh, this whole discussion that we had last Yom Kippur, I decided that it would be good to have this series uh, on the last days and the world to come. Last week, I gave you an overview of the subjects that would be addressed, the creation and its purpose, uh, the creation of man, the circumstances of death, and the hope of resurrection, the kingdom of God, both in heaven and on earth, the covenants of God, uh, the Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and New Covenants, the idea of judgment and salvation, what is God actually doing in salvation, is it about my salvation, or is it about the restoration of all creation? And then the idea of where are the dead, heaven and hell, and what will the final state be like, and what do these biblical terms mean? And finally, the return of Christ, which is what most people get excited about on that. You know, is it a pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation, all that kind of thing. What are the events and the sequence uh, of, the, uh, of the return of our Lord? Now, I suggested last week that uh, we are given enough information in the Scriptures to know when these events are immediate and happening. But we are not actually given enough information to predict that it's happening in advance. So Jesus said he doesn't know the day or the hour of his return. He said that the angels don't know, since often the angels were the informers of the prophets. The prophets don't know. And Jesus told the apostles it wasn't for them to know the time or the epics, and so nobody knows except the Father. And that should make us humble about trying to create timing. So I am not at all going to try to suggest the timing of these events, though we can see patterns, and certainly our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed, right? It's an interesting thing, we'll talk about this. The Bible talks about the last days, and John says... Even now we are in the last days. I'll talk about that. We've been in the last days for a long time. But we're not in the last days in that ultimate sense. How, how do we look at that? So I'll talk about that. But today I want to set the larger backdrop of the, of the doctrine. I thought I would go, uh, when I first talked about this, I thought, well, if I start right in on the good stuff that everybody wants to know, Uh, That will be exciting. But what the problem is, is it generates questions. Well, what about this? And then what about this? And then as you're unpacking all of that, people get lost. So what I'm going to do with the series is I'm going to start with 
those things that are the broadest context. If you think of a, a piece of art, the background is not what you're the most excited about, but the background sets the framing for everything that you are actually looking at. So I'm going to start with the broadest context and then narrow in in that sense. If this is somewhat Hebraic. God seems to do the same thing in the Revelation. Uh, Genesis 1 gives the entire uh, seven days of creation. And then Genesis 2 comes in and gives us the detail of the creation of Adam and Eve. Uh, Jesus talks in Matthew 24 about all the way till the end. Then he backs up and says, now when you see this. And then he kind of unpacks that. So I think that that's the more Hebraic way to do. And with that, I want to talk a little bit about um, why you should... Be, you should know this stuff and you should be thinking this way. There is a tendency for us to just pick up by osmosis and other uh, processes a mindset about the scriptures and about uh, what's going to happen. And we're not as aware of how that shapes our thinking until we run into some biblical texts and we try to twist them to fit into that thinking. And that happens a lot. The other problem is that if we don't rehearse the thinking of biblical notions, then what we have a tendency to do is use the, the mindset of the world or the worldview of the world to interpret the scriptures instead of the mindset of God. The original use of the term worldview, as it was coined by Immanuel Kant back in the late 1700s, was to address the idea of how does God see reality versus how does man see reality. Well, God has not changed in how he sees reality. But in Babel, man was scattered in all kinds of languages and we've got a, 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 a thousand, maybe five thousand worldviews of trying to look at that. But the scriptures are coming from the perspective of God. In fact, this is why Israel is so important. Because God created a people and a worldview and a behavior to be the light to the nations about what he's doing. To ignore that, to just take the Bible and ignore who it was given to and through is a problem which I'll address later in the series. But, but, but you need to be thinking about this kind of framework. So today I've titled the message... Uh, under the subject of the creation and its purpose. I've entitled it, The Heavens and the Earth, Long Ago, Present and New. Now, I could have said past, present, and future. And you say, well, why do you say long ago, uh, present, and new? Because those are the biblical terms used by Peter to address this. And so I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Second Peter chapter 3. We're going to look specifically at verses 3 through 13. We're going to travel around the scriptures a little bit. But we're going to focus on this section quite a bit. But I want to give you the context. This letter by the Apostle Peter, the uh, Apostle to the Circumcision, as Paul calls him, is a uh, reminder uh, towards the end of his life uh, that what the Apostles had brought to the churches and to Israel was not a uh, 
series of myths or a series of fables. But they were eyewitnesses of the Messiah. And they were with him on the mountain when God announced who he was. And, and Peter says, even though we have that experience, we have a more sure word of prophecy that you should pay attention to. And he's referring to the scriptures. Now at that point, he's not referring to the gospel uh, writings or the New Testament writings. They are, have not been written. He's, he's writing it even now, right? He's writing uh, about the Torah and the prophets and the wisdom literature that Israel already has. In them, uh, there is this knowledge. And certainly the Gospels and the Epistles are going to build on that. But it is eyewitness information and the sacred scriptures uh, are, are the surer foundation than even their experience. Now he says that there are people who for many reasons are going to rise up and they're going to manipulate the faithful. These are what Peter calls false prophets. And in his second chapter, which parallels greatly the book of Jude, the entire book of Jude, all the chapters in Jude, uh, which is one, uh, he parallels this idea that false prophets rise up among the people. Not outside the people, among the people. So where we should expect false doctrine is within the clergy of the churches, not outside the church. We have a tendency not to think that way. Uh, We have a tendency to think that false prophets are going to look false, they're going to be outside. Not that they're going to look like they're uh, men and women of God and their uh, message is going to sound good. Uh, because the ministers of Satan are like angels of light, um, and then they're going to lead you astray, which means you have to know the scriptures to uh, avoid being led astray. Now, one of the false teachings he says it's going to arise, and that's what chapter 3 is about, is a mocking of the return of Jesus. And he says that uh, the reason they will mock it is Time will seem to have not changed at all since the beginning. And it appears that the promises of God are not real. Maybe we need to reinterpret them. And of course that has happened in the church and in Judaism. Uh, To some extent uh, Jews in some cases have dropped the idea of a Messiah. Maybe a messianic age. Maybe just a better time. And in Christianity uh, there have been a lot of a spiritualizing of texts so that they're not, a, they're not literal and they're not real. They're more, you know, just guidelines of things that are there. So in that context, what Peter says is, these people are ignorant that there was a heaven and earth of long ago. And then he says that there is an earth of the present. And then he says that there is a New heaven and new earth that we are expecting in the text that we're going to read in just a minute. So there is a, there is a world, if you will, a heavens and earth of long ago. That's from creation to the flood. There is this present age, this present heavens and earth. And there will be a new heavens and earth that will happen at, when this one passes away. And so that's a major uh, important part of the background of what we need to think about in terms of patterns 
and in terms of prophecy. So, what I'd like you to do now is look at Second uh, Peter chapter 3, uh, where he begins this. In verse 3 he says, Know this first, that in the last days mockers will come with their mockings, following their own lusts. Now they will believe that they are following God. We live in a time when if somebody has an urge, somebody has an itch, somebody has a thought, somebody has an emotion, they blame it on God. We have moved away from thus saith the Lord based on the scriptures to thus saith the Lord as to whatever is going on in my circumstances or in my person. And the Bible tells us not to trust that. But the church is filled with that. You can go to church after church after church and hear people say, God told me this, God told me that, God told me the other thing. And the clergy are filled with that as well. And often, it's very easy if you know the scriptures to know that what they're saying is not the God of the Bible. It's the God of their appetites. And so he says that that's what this is going to come from. And he says, they're going to say, everything continues just as it was from the beginning. You know, every day the sun goes up, every day the sun goes down, the rain comes, the rain goes away, the seasons come. The, you know, it's just been the same ever since the creation. When God said, let there be light, and divided the waters and everything was there, it's just been the same from then till now. And then Peter says... When they maintain this, verse 5, this is the critical verse. When they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth. There is a long ago heavens and earth that were created by the word of God. And God said, let there be. And God said, let this happen. Hebrew says, we understand that by faith, that the heavens of old were created by the word of God. And the things which appear are not made by things which appear. In other words, the creation of the earth is not based on material reality. It's based on God speaking it into existence. And he says that earth was formed out of water and by water. Remember, the spirit of God hovered upon the face of the deep. And God said, let there be. And he divided the waters above from the waters below. All that language that is found again repeated in the Psalms. He says, through which, by means of water, he says, the world at that time, long ago, was destroyed, being flooded with water. So there is a world that existed in the past, long ago. Not in a galaxy far, far away, in the same galaxy, but it is a world that existed before. This is the world uh, that Peter is talking about. The heavens and the earth of long ago is the heavens and earth of creation. In the beginning was spoken into existence by the word of God. It is the earth of the Garden of Eden and of Adam and Eve. It is an earth that does not have weather patterns. The scripture says there was no rain in that world. But a mist would rise up and water the earth. So it is not season after season. Sunrise and sunset and everything like it was. It was a very different world. 
We also know from the genealogies that people lived well into their 900s. Man, retire at 65 and take Social Security until 967, right? Those are long lives, right? The environment was very different. It is a world that we cannot comprehend, but it is the world of the original creation. With the Garden of Eden, with Adam and Eve, with the original sin, and all of the stuff that happened in that context. That was a world that ended up unfettered in sin. And as a result of intermarriage between the line of Seth, whose line called upon the name of the Lord, and the line of Cain, who's built a city named after his son Enoch, and of whom all the great reputations came, the scripture tells us in Genesis 6, verses 1 to 8, that something happened. So I'd like you to turn with me to Genesis 6. This is that world of long ago. As it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. So this is the age of math. You're obviously not listening to me, right? Multiply meant that they were breeding. Not they were doing math. Okay, That the sons of God, that's the line of Seth. These are not angels. Angels don't have sperm. They don't reproduce. Okay, There are people that teach that kind of nonsense. Um, it's not true. Sons of God saw the daughters of men, that's the line of Cain, that they were beautiful. We just had those genealogies given in the previous chapter. And they took wives of all they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit will not always strive with man, because he is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Now what God is saying is, I'm going to give mankind a hundred and twenty years, and then I'm going to take them out. It's not about a lifespan. He is going to call Noah. We're going to see that. Noah is going to build the ark and preach for almost a hundred years, warning people of the destruction to come. With no results. It says the Nephilim were in the earth in those days. And also afterwards he says. When the sons of God came in to the daughters of men. In other words they mar married. The sons of God and the daughters of men bore children. These were the mighty men who were of old. Men of renown. Now if you read the text. You will see that there are two lines. The line of Cain who has a Enoch, who has a city built after him, and he, they are about reputation and fame. Down to a man named Lamech, who will say, I killed two people, I'm going to be more well protected and known than Cain. That is the line of self-sufficiency. The other line, the line of Seth, has an Enoch, who walked with God and was not, for God took him. He is not known. He's not a man of reputation. He is a man of faith. And then a Lamech, who is the father of Noah, who when his son is born says, perhaps God will save us from this curse. It is those two lines who come together, and instead of the lines becoming more righteous, the lines become polluted. 
and they seek reputation against God. And that arrogance of man instead of humility before God is what God is seeing and says, I'm going to have to destroy them. So, we have in Genesis uh, chapter 6 and then 7 the story of Noah. I don't have time to go through it, but you'll see it in March when it comes out in the theater. (laughs) We'll see how accurate they are, right? In Genesis chapter 8, verse 16, in this ancient world, after the flood has taken place and has destroyed the world of long ago, we get an insight into the world that is. God says, go out of the ark and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and the creeping things that creep on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply. So Noah went out, his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the Lord, on the altar. And the Lord smelled the the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Now look at verse 22. While the earth remains. What earth? The earth of long ago? No. The present earth. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and night and day shall not cease. That is the world you and I live in. The world of day and night, seasons, rains, all of that stuff. And that has been set relatively uniform for this present age. And God will make use of that statement to say when sun and and moon are gone, then Israel will be gone. In other words, he is going to lock Israel as a permanent fixture of this present creation for the purpose of illuminating the nations. And if you don't know that, and you don't see it from God's perspective, you are going to interpret all this stuff egocentrically. And that is an error. So, we then go back to 2 Peter chapter 3, and look at this statement about the present earth. In verses 7 through 11, he says, But but by his word, the present heavens and earth. What is his word? We just read his word. As, As I live, God says, day and night, winter and summer, those things will be fixed now, right? That's the word of God. By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment, And the destruction of ungodly men. God says, I'm not going to destroy the earth next time. I'm going to judge the men. I took out the earth to take out the men. This next time, what I'm going to do is purify the earth. With the refiner's fire. Destroy that which is evil. 
to restore and maintain that which is there. I'll focus my judgment directly on those men. And he says then, Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. So the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So what God is doing is, He is, this is the season of decision. This is the time of calling on God for His mercy and His grace. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. And what John... John will say at the end of Revelation is, let him that is righteous be righteous still. Let him that is filthy be filthy still. Pick a team. If God is God, serve Him. And if the God of this world is your God, serve Him. Don't sit on the fence. Don't be a little bit country, a little bit rock and roll. Get in the game. Because there is a way of righteousness towards God and there is a way unto death. A broad way. And many are on that road and a narrow way and few there are that find it. That's what this present age is about. So this present earth and this present time is about decision for God. God has established his covenants and declared his salvation and judgment through the choosing of Israel to be his light. And by the first coming of the Messiah, the son of Joseph, who will bring salvation to the whole creation. I have to unpack all of that over the next several weeks. The word, the Torah and the gospel, has gone out over all the earth, so that as Titus says, in chapter 2, verse 11, it teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope, and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That's our task. That's what we're supposed to be doing. It's not about being on layaway. Gee, I said the magic words, and I'm waiting for Jesus to come back. We are supposed to be living godly and righteous. We are to be, and we'll talk more about this later, if Israel is the light of God, and they are the light of God, We are to reflect that light as the Gentiles called from the nations alongside of them. Now you know what happens if you have a light and you put uh, the right kind of uh, glass thing around it. That light goes everywhere, right? So the the brightness of the light is Israel, but the the lamp that that is going includes us. So that the light will go everywhere. And even shine back to unbelieving Israel as we provoke them to envy. We'll talk about that. But that is central to what God is doing. This is where the covenants and the gospel must be understood directly focused on Israel. The people and the land. And I'll discuss that in a couple of weeks as we look at those covenants. So then we have to look at... The, pres- uh, the, uh, the new heavens and earth, which uh, are picked up at verse 10. 
But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. All the cities, all the bridges, all the handiwork of man will be removed from the handiwork of God. We build in vain, as they did at Babel. First God confounded the language and sent them over. So what do we do? We built towers of Babel everywhere. Since these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and righteousness? Holy and righteous. Doesn't that sound like the commandments? Commandments of holiness, the commandments of goodness. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Because of which, in that day of God, the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. This present heavens and earth will be destroyed. More likely refined by fire. And then he says, but according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, that's holy, and blameless, that's righteous according to the command. you'd almost think I was reading a Jewish book on the Old Testament. I'm reading from whom the church considers to be the primary apostle of Jesus. We we might want to listen to him. He might have something to say, you know. So what about this new heaven and new earth? Well, Let's take a look at a couple of passages about that. We'll we'll unpack it much more later. In Isaiah chapter 65. And by now you should say, I knew he was going to go to Isaiah because you can't get to the Gospels from the Old Testament except taking the road of Isaiah, right? Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice for what, for, forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. And I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. Well, that's great. An infant will be there in it an infant who lives uh, there there will be in it an infant uh, there will not be I'm, I'm looking at no longer will there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out all his days for the youth will die at the age of a hundred sound a little bit like uh, 
the lifespan of long ago. And the one who does not reach the age of a hundred will be thought to be accursed. They only made it to a hundred? Just got started. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and eat them. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant another eat because they'll stay there. You're not going to die, and Right? For as the lifetime of a tree, so will the days of my people be, and my chosen one will wear out the work of their hand. They will not labor in vain, nor bear children for calamity. They will be offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. And it will come to pass that before they even call, I will answer, and while they are still speaking, I will hear. And the wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And the dust will be, upon, be the serpent's food. Goes back to Genesis. You will eat dust, Satan. And they will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Now wait a minute. New heaven and new earth. But it's new heaven and new earth where we have marriage and we have families and there is some death. The former things of, are not remembered. Uh, this sounds like a major improvement on this age. But it's not the fullness of the new heaven and new earth that will ultimately be. So let's go to Revelation chapter 21. I dare say most of you have not heard this. These verses are just blurred together. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the heavenly, the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, made ready for the bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. They will be His people, and God will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be death. There will no longer be mourning or crying or pain. The first things are passed away. Notice what Isaiah said. First things, the former things won't be remembered. They'll still be there in very small sense. But here they're gone. There will be no death. And he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making everything new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. That brings to us some need to understand the relationship between the heavens and the earth of long ago, the heavens and the earth of the present time, and the heavens of the earth, the new heavens and the earth. So let me, uh, let me do that real quickly and show you the, the hinge point, the link. The past, present, and future heavens and earth are not compartments. They overlap. The first heavens and earth had a transition. God brought about something new in Noah. Before, and the ark, he brought all that was going to be good and kept. Before, he put his judgment down on the old earth. To bring it in. So Noah is the transition of that. And 
there is going to be a transition between the new heaven and new earth and the restoration of this heavens and earth. And they're both hinged at the same point. Now, what was the hinge point here? What did I say? Noah. So, let's look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. What, what, what did he say? The, word, the heavens of long ago, the earth of long ago, were created by the word of God. This present one is maintained by what? The word of God. The new one will be promised by what? Word of God will never pass away, even though these transitions happen. Right? But of that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. A transition. In those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man. Then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be in grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Now, who's taken? Those in judgment. At the end of this age, there is going to be a bloodbath slaughter. And many of those who are not waiting for the Lord and don't know the Lord are going to be killed. And some of them will survive and move into the kingdom of heaven. And Revelation tells us what will happen ultimately to them. We'll talk about that later. But this has been told to you that somebody's disappearing and going to heaven and some are left on earth. That's out of context. Notice that just like it was in Noah's day, where Noah has the message, is proclaiming the message, most of the world doesn't care, and he enters into that salvation, there is salvation, and then replacement, and they're, they're taken in the judgment. Well, Jesus talks about this more than once, so turn with me to Luke chapter 17. And again, I'm just touching on this now, we'll look at it in more detail in the series. Luke 17, verses 22 and following. He said to his disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, Son of Man, and you will not see it. We are going to live, if we come to the end of days, we're going to live at a time when it's as if Jesus never came, there is no message. It is utter darkness. And the world is not going to want to hear that message. And they will say to you, look here, look there. Don't go there. Don't run after him. All these people are going to rise up and say, I know Jesus, follow me. I know Jesus, follow me. Because they're not following the word. They're following personalities. They're teachers who will tickle their ears. 
Even if they use the scriptures, and Satan uses the scriptures, he did it to tempt Jesus. People won't know what the scriptures actually say. But just as the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky and shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. When Jesus comes, it's not going to be secret. It's not going to be a rapture. It's not going to be a disappearing act. Every eye will see him. And they will mourn and say, oh, no, it's true. And they'll cry for the rocks to fall on them. And we will be crying out, even so. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Hoshiana, save us. That's what they said at Palm Sunday. It doesn't mean praise the Lord. It means save us now. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them. And the same happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planning, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down and take them out. Likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken and one will be left. Two in the field, one will be taken, the other left. And they said, where? Where are they going? Now he's talking about a gathering. And he says, where the body is, there the vultures will be gathered. The ones who are taken are taken in judgment. And the scripture talks about the great feast of the Lord, where the birds of the air will be called to eat the corpses of all those who have died. It's the gathering of the unrighteous. He says, I'm going to gather the unrighteous and burn them like chaff. And then my people will enter into the kingdom. We really have this somewhat messed up. So, there is a world long ago, there is the present age that you and I live in, you are here, that we're waiting, this one is going to have some things that we need to know about at the end, and then there's going to be the restoration of the kingdom, and then the new heaven and new earth, and we'll talk about that in the future. One little brief thing, uh, just so that you have this. So what is, what is God doing? Why is he doing this? What's the purpose of God? Well, the purpose of God in creating is not that God needs someone to love him and he's hoping you will. Okay? That's, a, that's a recent doctrine that's just nonsense. If we read the scriptures carefully, and I'll give you three to look at. Ephesians, 9, 3, Ephesians 3, 9 and 10, 1 Peter 1, 12, and 1 Corinthians 11, 10. I'm just giving you those. Ephesians 3, 9 to 10, 1 Peter 1, 1 verse 12. And 1 Corinthians 11.10. These are cryptic passages. They're not direct teachings. 
But people have looked at those for a long time, including the Psalms, that God seems to be creating for the purpose of His glory, and the angels seem to be part of this process. That God is demonstrating Himself before the principalities and the powers. That's Ephesians. He is explaining Himself to the angels. He is doing these things of salvation that Peter says... Angels desire to look on. And when women are told to cover their heads when they pray or prophesy, and men to uncover their heads, we're told to do that for the angels' sake. Which means that God is doing all of this in creation, not for you and me. He is showing forth His glory to the angels. We are the objects by which God is going to show His mercy and His grace and His justice, and His long-suffering, and all of that. We are a play in creation that the angels are watching because they don't get God. And God said, okay, I'm going to create a world. In it, you're going to see my justice. You're going to see my mercy. You're going to see my grace. You're going to see my love. You're going to see my wrath and my anger. You're going to see my wisdom. All of it's displayed in there. You and I will be glorified in my creation. And, he says, and you, ultimately, though now we suffer, will rejoice in all that he has done. Because the things to come and the glory to be revealed is not worthy to be compared to the sufferings that we are presently undergoing. They are part and parcel of this creation. So, The backdrop of the whole purpose of God in his creation is to be found in understanding that the heavens and the earth of long ago, the heavens and the earth of the present, and the heavens and the earth that will be new are the focus and substance of what God is doing. They overlap, and in the pattern of that overlap, we can understand more fully the events of the last days and the world to come. But there is a unique part of this creation that wasn't spoken into existence. God formed man from the dust of the ground directly and breathed into him the breath of life. So we have to understand what the psalmist asks. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? For you have made us lower than the angels and yet are going to crown us with glory and honor. We have to figure out What the creation of man, the death of man, and the resurrection of man means in the plan of God. And we're going to do that next week. Let's pray.